Hi, this is Matt, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who loves bluegrass. Hey, everybody, welcome back. This is the final bit of basically a month of celebrating Earl Scruggs for his 100th birthday. And we've had all those three episodes before that you've probably heard by now. Um with all those wonderful guests, but this is one more, and it's only got one person on this one, it's going to be Jim Mills. And I had the chance to talk to Jim, I messaged him, and he very kindly said he would have a a phone call with me. Um, And not only because Jim is an amazing banjo player, um, a lot of you will know him from his wonderful work with Ricky Skaggs and Kentucky Thunder, but Jim is also something of an expert on pre-war Gibson banjos. Um, And like for me, part of Earl's legacy is that the banjos people have chosen to play over the last 50 years were influenced by what Earl played. And I don't know a lot about that, but Jim does. And so I wanted to talk to him about the banjos as well as about Earl. And that's what we did. Um, yeah, really fascinating conversation. I've had a great time having all these conversations about Earl. Um, after this one, we're going to move on and get back to talking about some other stuff. But it's been a real treat and a real pleasure. And I hope you've enjoyed them too. So, yeah, final one coming up. Here is my conversation with Jim Mills. I read something that you wrote just after Earl passed and it said Earl Scruggs was my all-time hero on this earth he was the driving force behind most everything I've ever achieved in my life and so many people I've talked to have said similar things and it's an extraordinary thing and I'd love to just talk about how Earl came into your life oh sure glad uh, I had uh, very simply I had two older brothers my middle brother was 10 years older than me and my oldest brother was 14 years older than me so getting to the bottom of that is I, I was a little kid and they were half grown. They had record collections and stereos and things of that nature when I was crawling around the floor playing with toys. You know, and, uh, when I was three or four years old, my middle brother was like 14. So he had a big, vast record collection and a uh, big turntable there to play it on. And one day I was crawling around the floor playing with toys. I could have been three, four years old, something like that. And he had uh, a greatest hits of Flatten Scrubs. And on that particular record featured the original cut, the 1949 cut of Foggy Mountain Breakdown. And uh, he put it on, played it, and he said, he's told me this years later, he said, I stopped what I was doing and crawled over to the speaker, walked over to the speaker and put my head up there and left it on the speaker till the song went off. And when it went off, I said, play it again, play it again. Hmm. And uh, the, the significance of that is my grandfather had played claw hammer banjo, old time claw hammer banjo, and my dad played what's known as a it's well-known here in North Carolina back in the 40s and 50s, was a two-finger style of play, five-string banjo. And I could care less for it. It didn't do anything for me. But when I heard Earl Scruggs hammering out the Foggy Mountain Breakdown on that original recording, it sounded like a jackhammer. I didn't know what it was. I was so young, I didn't know it was a banjo. I didn't, I didn't associate that with what I had heard growing up. And it just drew me like a moth to a flame. I couldn't get enough of it. And once I found out, of course, who Lester Flat and Earl Scruggs were and Foggy Mountain Boys, that's... Uh, I wanted to listen to everything I could from there on out. And I got serious about it. I guess I was nine or ten, somewhere along in there. And I heard I heard you say, it may have been in the same piece that I read, but talking about just wanting to imitate Earl down to having the same banjo strap and even like trying to, like wishing you had a gap between your teeth like Earl did. <laughs> that's true. All that's true. And, uh, you know, back in the days of LPs and you had all these great big pictures to look at and, and I'd study those. You know, I'd look at his right hand and try to my, get my hand to look like his and, of course, like you said, the strap was a thing and uh, the gap in his teeth and my mind kept coming in straight and I was taking two picks trying to prime apart. And, uh, but, uh, but no, I, I based a lot of things on, on those days because you start off, if you want to emulate someone, you, you look at the whole picture, you know, and, uh, and that was part of it. 
Yeah, and it's it's so many people I've talked to have had sort of just talked about hearing that sound and it just being such a like a fresh new thing to them and just going oh I want to do that I want to do that and so was it was it long after that you really started taking banjo seriously yourself well I, I dabbled around with the two finger style I was telling you that my dad played and of course it was just a fun thing for him They've never played professionally or anything like that but we would play together and my dad would play guitar and I'd play the banjo and I quickly picked up on the two finger style he was playing and pretty much learned everything he knew in six months time and then my dad knew, of course, that Earl Scruggs played with three fingers and uh, two finger picks and a thumb pick. And he said, son, just put that other pick on because I had just been using a thumb pick and a finger pick there for about six, eight months. And he said, just put that other pick on and maybe it'll come to you, is the way he put it. And uh, sure enough, it's almost like the Earl Scruggs story of Reuben. I was on the front porch and uh, by myself, just sitting there whittling away, playing a thing and trying to, I don't remember exactly what song I was playing. But it came to me, and it came very simplistic, obviously. I just figured it out, but I could keep a roll going. And from there on, it just grew and grew. When you're that age, uh, your mind's like a sponge. My God, I was learning six, eight songs a week. You know, it just that's all I thought about, breathing, yeah. sleep, you know, the banjo. But once I figured out the three-finger roll and kind of worked out some of the rudimentary parts of it that Earl was playing, of course, I couldn't play great starting right off, but I could figure out, it, it was so much more easier to keep time and stay in the role. And uh, that's that's where it came from, and that progressed on until I got serious about really hunkering down and trying to listen to those records and figure out what he was doing. I never had a lesson uh, in my life. I never did anything like that. I don't read music. And I really learned to play before I knew what tablature was. I was about uh, 13, I guess, when I got the Earl Scruggs book, which featured tablature was the first time I'd ever seen it. And I was playing pretty good by that time, and I, I really didn't uh, – rely on it at all I, I you know i understand it's helped a million millions of people learn to play in guitar banjo everything but i had already learned pretty much by ear to play by association pretty much i've, I've told many people this uh earl had a, a bag of licks almost like a vocabulary is the way i look at it we everything we say speak type uh every bit of communication we do is based upon you know the alphabet and that's a very few num- numbers and, and letters and, and letters but uh his, his playing style was very much that way. And if you learn that alphabet, you can speak that language. And he would throw something in there occasionally that was different, but uh, it's basically based around that alphabet that he, he created. And if you can learn 85% of that, you can play 85% of the stuff he played to some degree and, and learn it well. But he was a master at it. He really was. It's really interesting because I think uh, a lot of – either non-musicians or people kind of early in their musical career, you sort of presume that improvising is just entirely creating things on the spot all the time. And just like when we talk to each other, we're using phrases we've used before and things we know, and then we're filling in the gaps around it. And that idea that exactly. that, that is a vocabulary is like, it's, it's a really interesting thing, but also quite a powerful thing to understand as a musician who's trying to learn is that there are things you can learn that will get you there. Absolutely. And I, you know, there again, I feel like Earl's vocabulary, he spoke through the banjo, and he would, uh, whatever came into his mind, he could he could pull it out of the banjo, you know, or he could listen to a song uh, that was maybe played by a big band, and he could transpose that through the banjo very well. And, you know, he, he used that vocabulary and that alphabet to, to make it happen. And, uh, you know, one of the most shocking things I remember, I was in my 20s already working for Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver, and uh, back in those days, the major 
medium for music was cassette tapes. And you'd go in a truck stop or whatever in the middle of the night when the bus would stop. And I remember one particular night, we went about 2 o'clock in the morning, and there was this big rack of cassette tapes right at the cash register when you were to check out. And I got to looking half asleep, you know, looking at this, this cover, and it said, uh, Farewell Blues. And they said, Bugle Call Rag. And I said, what the heck is this? You know, I knew those as banjo songs, real stuff recording. And I picked it up, and it said, Greatest Hits of the Big Bands of the 30s and whatever. It had four or five different bands on there, and Benny Goodman and all these guys. And I said, Farewell Blues and Bugle Call Rag. I got to buy this. So I bought it. It was like three ninety five and Back in those days, a Sony Walkman was, everybody had one. And I went straight out to the bus, stuck that cassette in there, and played Bugle Call Rag. And I, I was amazed because many of the licks that Earl played on that recording of Bugle Call Rag are horn parts that were originally recorded 20 years prior to Earl recording it. And I thought, man, he absolutely took this horn part and made it a banjo thing. You know, every bluegrass player in the world knows the tune. You would call Rag and Farewell Blues and those things, and they were big band hits, and I'm sure they were very popular when he was a teenager. So uh, he was influenced by a lot of stuff, not just the old-time musicians of, of where he grew up in North Carolina that were playing Sally Gooden and Cripple Creek and things of that nature. And he could, he had the ear and the mind and the wherewithal to, to pull that out of a banjo and really make it shine. Yeah, and that's so interesting about those sort of early kind of swing lines and jazz lines that right. that Earl took and trans because you hear them now and they just sound like banjo lines but his ears were wide open and bringing stuff in from all over the place weren't they absolutely and I, I hear that in early uh, Bill Monroe and, and Bluegrass Boys when Earl and Lester were there and Chubby Wise and Howard Watts uh, if you go back and study early country music which is what it was called in Bluegrass the, the term didn't really exist yet string band music some folks called it uh, you didn't hear walking bass lines and uh, swing fiddle lines and Howard Watts and Chubby Wise both came out of swing bands prior to working for Bill Monroe, and they brought that element into bluegrass, and it fit perfectly. And it created that more driving beat of big band and swing music, and Bill Monroe, he took advantage of it, and it worked great, and, of course, every band after that. But a lot of people don't realize they were influenced by all musicians and, uh, and all music, and, and they made the best of it in, in what they were doing. Yeah, yeah, there's a real sort of melting pot um when you, you sort of go back Absolutely. and country and blues and swing and it's all, you know, it all crosses over so much. It's only really that sense maybe later in the 20th century when music was being marketed to people that the idea of genre was such a fixed thing. Exactly. And blues was a big part. I think blues, I've, uh, since uh, semi-retiring from the road, I don't play all the time now, but uh, I've really gotten into blues guitar and I've come to the conclusion in my own mind that I think Blues might be the earliest thing in this country, I mean, for all music. It just seems like everything came out of that. And uh, for everything that I've, country, rock and roll, bluegrass, of course, was heavily influenced by early blues music, really. And Bill Monroe, of course, said that a million times. And and, uh, and Earl played very bluesy you know, style of, of playing in certain things, and it just fits it very well. Yeah. And um, you, I remember reading somewhere, it was in your 20s that you first met Earl. How did that come about? That was a, an odd occurrence. Uh, I was in my 20s in the state of North Carolina. I'm from Raleigh, North Carolina, the capital city here. And actually, Flatten Scrubs lived here about 1953 for about a year. They played on the radio station here. And But long story short, I got a call one day to, uh, a matter of fact, Barry Poss was my employer at the time. I was working for 
Sugar Hill Records at the time and playing music as well. And uh, he, he said the Arts Council of, New, of North Carolina wants uh, you to come play banjo for this Earl Scruggs thing. They're giving Earl a Lifetime Achievement Award. And uh, I said, well, Lord, I'd be uh, honored to do it. And I had it was last call kind of thing. I didn't know anything about it, and I had to, maybe a day or two beforehand to uh, to get ready for it. Didn't know who the band was going to be or anything pretty much about it at all. It was very just put together quickly. And I went to the it was a theater there to college campus and uh, didn't know what to expect. <laughs> I knew I was playing with what I had to play or anything. So I showed up when they told me to to do sound check and that kind of thing. And it turned out it was. Uh, unbelievable. Louise and Earl were there, and he was dressed to the nines, and she was dressed to the nines. The newspaper people were there, and the TV people were there. and It was a big award, a lifetime achievement thing. And the band turned out to be great. It was Jim Shoemate, uh, Flatt and Scruggs' first fiddle player from Hickory, North Carolina, and Horace Scruggs, Earl's birthday, uh, Earl's brother, playing guitar. And uh, it was a big surprise to me. I had never met Horace, and, and he was just nice as he could be. And, and some other folks, I can't remember exactly who all played in the band, but it was most. I never was nervous playing. I tell people in front of forty, fifty thousand people, I don't mind picking my banjo around my neck. But playing in front of Earl ten feet and having to play Earl's breakdown was probably the most nerve wracking thing I played. Not surprised. And I, I remember you saying that the sort of seldom ever to completely relax around him when you did spend time around him. It's really funny because I talked. I talked to Tim O'Brien and he said a very similar thing. He said he, you know, he'd have a picking party, invite Earl over, and he'd only really relax once he'd gone. <laughs> I never, I never got to go to any picking parties. It turns out I was always on the road working with somebody when they would have those things. But some of the most cherished times I have are the times that I got to, to visit Earl when it was just me and him. Now, I, w- I was over there a few times when a lot of fans would be there, or two or three husbands and wives and that kind of thing that he didn't really know that somebody had arranged for him to come over to the house. And, and to be honest with you, Earl was kind of a shy fellow, and he had stock answers for that kind of a crowd. You know, somebody asked him something, he'd say a very short answer, and that'd be it. But... The few times, maybe five, six times, I got to go and visit with him for 30, 45 minutes when it was just me and him. He was very relaxed and very at ease, and uh, I, I've cherished those those visits because you could ask him anything, and he would just talk freely you know, about it, and, and things that you didn't read in articles, stuff you didn't know about the early days and traveling with Monroe and the early days of Flatten Scrooge and things like that. He would He would expand on those things, and I really enjoyed those stories probably more than anything, but... That was a that was a real treat for me when I got to do it. Hmm. And I'd re- I'd also really like to talk to you, um, if I can, for a bit about the banjos because you are, you know, a, an authority on pre-war Gibson banjos. And one of the things, one of Earl's legacies is, that he's sort of left is this desire to play certain models of banjo. And for those of us that like me that aren't banjo players or sort of banjo aficionados, I'd love to talk about how. Earl sort of influenced the way people choose banjos and the kind of banjos people want to play these days. Absolutely. You mentioned pre-war Gibson banjos, and, and there really would be no uh, big desire for them had Earl not played one, in my opinion. And, you know, I've dug deep into that subject uh, pretty much my whole adult life. And I asked Earl one time, I asked several older guys, the, the guys, at the luminaries of the style, what, what made you want a Gibson banjo? And even Earl and Curtis McPeak and guys like that would say, well, we knew that was the banjo to have. And I said, well, how did you know that was a banjo to have? And then I come to find out after, like I say, a lot of digging and a lot of studying these things, the pioneers prior to Earl 
if you if you want to go there, these are guys that most people won't know their names. They didn't record heavily. Uh, they didn't travel. They didn't make records. A lot of guys in that 100-mile radius, I'll say, in North Carolina, of the, if you put Shelby right there, Flint Hill in the center of where Earl was from, right around there, they all – there were several three-finger style players that never really went very far. They stayed in their local areas. Probably the biggest known name would be Snuffy Jenkins, and he was an influence on Earl. Earl gave him a whole page in his book. But there were other guys like Matt Crow, Leeborn Rogers, and several guys uh, that all played. Fisher Henley was another one that was an influence on Earl. They all played pre-war Gibson banjos. So I have to take it into – you have to just speculate – to some degree, that guys like Earl Scruggs and Don Reno as kids went to these shows and saw these guys playing these banjos, and they studied it. Like me, I was telling you, studying those record covers. You know they studied what kind of banjo these people were playing and the sound that they were getting from it, and that, that's the sound they were looking for. So naturally, when Earl went looking for a banjo, when he had money enough to buy himself a banjo, the first decent banjo he bought was a Gibson RB11. That's what he took to Nashville when he recorded the first recordings with Bill Monroe and Bluegrass Boys. And he upgraded later on to an RB-75 master tone. And that's the banjo he traded to Don Reno, which is a famous trade and well-documented for the Granada that he ended up playing for the majority the rest of his career for the most part. And, and what but is it? He's the reason that they're desirable. He's, Earl Scruggs is the reason that any pre-war Gibson banjo basically is desirable today. And what's different about those Granadas than the earlier models he traded up from? What sort of distinguishes them? Well, the Granada was a high-grade banjo. It was gold-plated, engraved. It had beautiful curly maple wood in the neck and the resonator. And uh, I tell people, though, a lot of people don't understand this. Gibson had many grades, from student-grade instruments up to the most fancy things you can imagine. The All-American was the the top of the line. But the Granada sat about three-fourths the way up. It was a higher-grade banjo. It retailed for $200. And people laugh at those prices today. We say, oh, $200. Well, you could buy a brand-new Ford automobile for less than $400, like $385. So it's a lot of money back then. And a student-grade Gibson banjo, something like a Style 1 or Style 11, retailed for $40 to $50. And that's what Earl started off with was the RB11 model, which was kind of a student-grade instrument, but he made it sound great on record. But uh, he, he went from a Style 75, which was kind of a mid-grade, that was a get-in-the-game master tone for the most part, and then the Granada was a, a, a good step up. And uh, the the reason the Granadas, the Granadas are beautiful, even if Earl hadn't played one day, they're really, uh, Gibson made some banjos higher grade than the Granada, like the Bella Voce, the Florentine, and the All-American, and they're heavily carved and painted and of course, more gold plating, more, well, everything's gold plated, but it's engraved all over, and they sell for a lot more than the Granada. But I think the, the Granada has a, a subdued beauty to it. It's just uh, it's just enough and not too much. It's not gaudy. Some of those later banjos can get gaudy looking to some people. But Earl took the Granada. He heard something special in that banjo the first time he played it. He always said he, he wanted it, you know, and he uh, had uh, tried to trade Don Reno prior to the trade that they made. And Don said in the other interviews I've seen that Don said he didn't have a banjo. Earl didn't have a banjo suitable to trade until he got this RB-75. And it was like brand new, and the Granada was in kind of rough condition, so he made the trade with him. Earl went on and played it for the rest of his career. And to somebody who doesn't know so much about these things like me, it feels like a banjo has like many more moving parts than your average bluegrass instrument. And in terms of like maintenance, <laughs> oh, you're, you're, you know... You're, you're totally right, Matt. They're they're like an erector set. They're 50% <laughs> nuts and bolts. And, I mean, uh, 
you can interchange parts. You can take this off of that and put this on that. And that's been one of the problems in authenticating original pre-war Gibson banjos. And you really have to study these things hard. There's been a, a cottage industry of aftermarket parts makers since the 60s. So, I mean, we're talking about over 60 years of fake parts, basically, that can be interchanged on any of them. So, uh, but you're right about the, the moving parts thing. And, and banjo players are terrible tinkerers. I never was one myself, but I've seen so many guys that would – I've seen guys change heads 15 minutes before they're going on stage or, you know, just tear the banjo apart and put it back together an hour before they got a, a recording session or something. And uh, I never was one of those guys. Honestly, I had an older person tell me I was complaining about my banjo when I was in my teens to a, another banjo player, and he said, son, he said, sometimes if you set it in the case or put it in the stand for a day or so, come back and pick it up and you'll find out it was you and not the banjo that changed that much. <laughs> right. I'll have, to, I'll have to agree with him because uh, if you don't feel good or things are not going great, sometimes that isn't the best time to pick one up. You'll find fault in the banjo when it's really your fault. You know? And the sort of flip side of having all those moving parts is like particularly back in the 40s, just keeping your banjo in shape for recording and touring when you're working as much as those guys did and you're on the road and the humidity's changing and you've got a calf head and all of that it must have been an well, astonishing amount of work oh, just to keep it oh absolutely i've always said that earl scruggs was the master mechanic on a banjo i've heard uh all the live shows that there are pretty much out there i've got recordings of and you'll never hear his banjo sound bad you'll never hear his bridge intonation be off you'll never hardly hear him out of tune and his banjo always was cracking and good sounding, and this was prior, like you mentioned there, it's a good thing to mention that the uh, people don't realize, a lot of people don't realize today, that prior to 1959-60, the Mylar plastic heads that we use today didn't exist. Everything was calfskin, and I say calfskin, I mean real calfskin. Rogers was a, they made drum heads, they made banjo heads, and they're still some of the the best heads ever made, but Gibson uh, contracted with Rogers, on their best model banjos to use Rogers calfskin heads all the way up till the, the 60s. And uh, that's what Earl had to use, and that's what Don Reno had to use. That's what all the, the early guys had to use, like I say, until 1960. And it, uh, I used one. I've tried them, and they can be very, very tough. I asked Earl about that one time in his house, in his kitchen. I said, you know, what was your daily routine like traveling as much as you guys traveled? And he said, "Some this was eye-opener for me. I just couldn't believe it, what I was hearing. He said some, he would tune the strings down after the show, tune the strings down, and sometimes let the bridge all the way down, just lay it down flat. You know, they were traveling, before they got to deal with Martha White, they were traveling in cars. Mm-hmm. And uh, instruments went in the, truck, in the trunk of the car, and uh, a lot of times the cases were not that, that great of protection. The, the early cases are thin and nothing like as heavy-duty as what we have today, like captain cases and flight cases and things. And he would let the bridge down, turn the strings down, as to not the three feet on a bridge can push through a calfskin head. I mean, if you hit a big pothole with a lot of tension on it, you know, it could do a lot of damage. And he said the first thing he would do the next day when they got to where they were going to play the show was set the bridge back up, turn the strings up, get everything, and take his thumbs and go around the head to feel what the tension was like. And I remember this, I won't ever forget, it was a, a great story that I could just envision. He said, I always loved when we played theaters, he said, because they had footlights on the stage. And he would take the back, the resonator off the banjo, and hold the back of the calfskin head up to these hot footlights to dry it out. And he said that would help me greatly in tightening the head and that kind of thing and taking any kind of humidity out of it. 
would would heat it up because uh, the, the gist of a calfskin head is humidity is your worst nightmare. Uh, if you got a good tight head and your banjo sounds great, and a big rainy day comes in with a lot of humidity, your your head's going to sink and your bridge is going to sink and your string action is going to go down almost unplayable in some cases. And you tighten the head up, get it playable. Everything sounds good, and you throw it back in the case and leave for the next day, and the sun comes out and the humidity goes away, it can tighten up and bust. And then you have to change the whole head. So that was a big job just keeping up with the weather and keeping up with where I'm going and what's the, what's the humidity like here today. And so you had to work on it constantly. Today we just get them out of the case and start playing. We don't think about all those things to take all that for granted. But he had to deal with that, and so did all the other banjo players from that era. And I've talked to them about similar things. And it just sounds like a – a nightmare to have to deal with and try to play and record and do what you have to do, especially television shows and live shows. And I've thought about many things. Houses and cars didn't have the, the heat and air conditioning systems that we have today. So basically whatever the humidity was outside, it was the same thing inside. You know? So they had to deal with that. It's extraordinary to think that despite all of that, like, as you just mentioned, all the live recordings you've heard, you've never heard one where the banjo sounded bad. No, and I, I won't say any names, but I've heard other live recordings from the same period of banjo players that you would know their name very well, that their banjos did not sound good. They sounded tubby. Uh, the intonation could be off. And, and I, I equate that to, you know, the, the being able to work on them and to keep them. He was a, he was a master mechanic on a banjo, no doubt. And, I'm, and I, he told me personally, you know, you had to work on them all the time, you know, to keep them in that kind of shape. And that's why a lot of people talk about the pre-war sound and Earl sound and this and that and the other. If you go back and listen to the Mercury records on up through the Columbia stuff, even though he's, he could be playing the same banjo, it can sound totally different from recording to recording simply because of possibly what the weather was that day, you know, or what room they're in or what microphone he's recording on. So it can sound like a totally different banjo. Of course, you know who's playing it, but uh, that's that's the big thing I get a joke at, a kick out of it when somebody says, oh, it's they can pick out what banjos on what recording. I can't do that, and I've had over 450 pre-war Gibson banjos mm-hmm. and just about every model that they made. And, uh, you know, it sounds different from day to day because you're continually having to change something. And once Earl got that Granada, was that largely what he played from then on? Largely the rest of his career. He, now, he, he got the Granada. He played it for a short span, and it was in terrible need of some repair and he, he shipped it back to the gibson factory back then there were not a lot of luthiers and guys like that that worked on things outside of the factory and most everybody sent things back to the factory then to have anything done it needed frets it needed fingerboard it needed attention hoop a lot of things a lot of work it needed done he sent it back he didn't get it back for i think a year and a half something like that till about 1951 and in that span of time i asked him this uh, when i was writing my book because Everybody knew that the Granada had been sent back to the factory. It was a well-known fact. But nobody had ever asked him, what did you play during that time? Because Flight and Scrubs was busy, man. They kept playing. Mm-hmm. They were playing seven days a week. And uh, I said, what banjo did you play during that period? And he just came right out with it, just nonchalant as nothing. He said, when they moved to Knoxville, Tennessee, to work on a radio station there, uh, he knew the Granada was in need of work, and he wanted to send it back to the factory. And he had Lester announced on the air during their radio program, if anybody had a Gibson Master Tone banjo for sale, that Earl Scruggs was looking for one. And this lady contacted the radio station. Her husband had recently passed away, and she had a Gibson Master Tone, and she wanted to sell it. And Earl said he went out to the house and looked at it, and she told him that it's in good shape except one of the tuners is bad. And he said he looked at it, and the screw had backed out. He just tightened it up, and everything was fine. And he that was an RB3 
Gibson Mastertone flathead five-string banjo, and he played that for a span there. And, and we, uh, the scholars that have talked about these things, there's a, there's a group of flat and scrubs guys that are deeper than you can imagine into all this stuff, anything relating to flat and scrubs. And we fully believe he recorded with that RB3 on some of the Mercury stuff, some of the best stuff ever. And, of course, he sounds as good or better on the three to go in Granada. So it's, it's a toss-up. I love them both. But uh, he did play RB3 there, waiting for the Granada to come back. He got the Granada back in 1951 and pretty much played that banjo for the rest of his life. Yeah, it's amazing to think, isn't it, despite all of that, like the tone is essentially in the person. I mean, I talked to a load of people about Tony Rice for the 40th anniversary of Church Street Blues last year. And, you know, Wyatt was talking to me about mm. how the Tony would play the ovation. Some people couldn't tell whether it was that or the D28 on a record <laughs> just because like, the tone is coming from Tony's hands. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That's 90% of it. A lot of Now, I, I, I tell people this. I've had people say, oh, Jim, you can make anything sound good. I said, no. I said, uh, it's like a race car driver. I mean, I don't care how good a race car driver you are. You're not going to win the Indianapolis 500 in the Volkswagen. <laughs> and uh, you've got to have the tools to work with. But uh, if you have a good tool, you can make the best of it. And uh, like you said, I've heard Tony play other guitars and sound just like Tony. I've heard Earl play other badges and sound like Earl, J.D. Crow, all my, my heroes. It's, it's in the hands, it honestly is. But you have to have a quality tool to produce that sound. And I guess you have to, sort of going back to what we were talking about um, at the beginning, really, is that you, you have to have a sound in your head that you're trying to get to. And I think, that you, like you were saying, you learned a lot of Earl's stuff by ear. Once that sound exists, because Earl's heard it and produced it, it becomes slightly easier to listen to it Absolutely. and recreate it, because that, you know, Earl's put his sound out there into the world and everybody else can then have a go at it. Exactly. I, I agree with you 100%. And I tell people that if you want to learn to play like Earl Strokes or Bela Fleck, whoever you want to learn to play like, saturate yourself in everything they've recorded. And your ear will turn toward that. You'll, you'll eventually, if you like it that way, you will start to hear that way. And, uh, you know, Earl Scruggs is the tone, the sound, the timing, the separation, the drive, everything. Everything about his playing is what I want to play like. That's what I want it to emulate. And you'll end up playing more similar to that than anything else. I've actually had songs where uh, this this happened to me, honestly. I had never heard Earl play this particular song. I was in some band. I don't remember who I was with. And we were working up this particular tune. And, of course, I'd always think, like, what would Earl play here? You know, well, how, how would he approach this? And I recorded it, played it. And lo and behold, five or six years later, found a, a live Flat and Scrub show with Earl playing that particular song. They never recorded it on record, but it was a live show. And I was 98% on what Earl had played. <laughs> I thought, man, it made me happy, you know, that I had played. But that's all because of the way you, you go to that same school, you're going to have that same education, that same kind of way of thinking. And that's where I came from. And did you find, like, particularly playing with Ricky Skaggs and Kentucky Thunder, so, you know, a band that was geared towards recreating and sort of celebrating that that first generation sound to some extent. Do you find yourself playing some of those songs and just playing the kickoffs and the breaks that Earl played because they're so much part of those songs? Oh, absolutely. It's almost, and you know, some people would say, oh, play it your way and do your own thing on it. But it's almost sacrilege to me to play something. You know, I would do something different, maybe a different lick, different ending, something to, to end up a, a solo. But yeah, you, you learn them that way and it's almost embedded in you. It's, just, it's almost like you can't, you can't play it any other way. And uh, 
maybe that's a, a crippling thing to some musicians, but it, it was always, to me, I was paid just, it was almost like a credit that, that I was trying to play what Earl played. And of course, nobody sounds like Earl. I've never heard anybody. I can pick him out of a hundred banjo players, but you do your best, you know, to do him proud and on that kind of stuff. And that was a great uh, band to play in. Uh, Ricky, Ricky's from that same school, Stanley Brothers, Flat and Scrubs, Monroe. And when I went in that band, it was like, you know, I didn't, I knew all the songs. It was the greatest thing ever. I told somebody the other day, Ricky would come up with some obscure Flat and Scruggs or Monroe or Stanley Brothers song, and I knew them all. And a lot of the band might not know them. They, they were younger guys and that really listened to that stuff. But I, that's what I grew up on. So we were absolutely from the same school of music. And that's almost it. Um, I asked Jim, as I often do with people, we'd finished the conversation basically, but I said, is there anything else that you want to add? And often some really cool stuff comes from that so here's just the last bit of a conversation after we'd really wrapped up um but i wanted to leave this in because there's some really cool stuff in here so this is the final bit of the jim mills chat uh when i talked to earl that day in raleigh the first time i ever really was around him this was a cool subject that kind of blew my mind once he found out that i was born and raised in raleigh he told me the story about earl's breakdown i don't know if you know this uh, very well but before the detuners were invented that basically create a you can put a stop on a, you can tune to G and, and screw a screw in and, and it screws it down to G and then you tune it down to D. And uh, that's how he did Earl's breakdown with the B string, the second string. He told me he invented that here in Raleigh and drilled the hole in the peg head of that Granada right there with a brace and bit drill and put it in. And he said, uh, it was about to run him crazy, basically. He told me the whole story. He said, we had recorded Earl's breakdown without a tuner. He did it with just a standard tuner. Wow. And um, he said the song was so popular, people started asking for it at live shows. And he said it was about to run him crazy trying to stay in tune. And so he invented the detuner right there in Raleigh and went on to be a big hit. I didn't realize he just did the one string to start with, and he said he did the third string later on, and that's when he recorded Flint Hill Special and all those songs. But that was right here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Yeah, and it's amazing to say that he's had an influence on the physical instrument as well, not just the way people play it, but the, you know, the way the instrument exists you know, he now. Was fearless. That, that's another another thing you can say. Earl was fearless when it came to modifying his banjo to suit himself. We take all these things for granted today, like detuners. We take fifth-string fifth spikes, which are kind of a capo for the fifth-string. Fifth I asked Earl about that when he went to work for Bill Monroe in 1945. I said, how did you figure out the fifth-string? string spike thing i said had you seen somebody do that prior to you going there he said no he said it was necessity and he said he basically took a drill drilled holes in the fingerboard and took women's hairpins and stuck them in hammered them down and bent them over and that's we take all that for granted everybody uses them today it's like you know it's a standard thing but he had to figure all that out by himself it's extraordinary to think that one person had such a comprehensive effect on everything that came after him on his instrument. You're, you're right. It's, uh, I heard someone say at Earl's funeral, I don't remember who it was, it was a famous, famous rock and roll artist. And uh, he said, honestly, I don't know how he knew so much about Earl or why he was into him as so heavily, but he said, uh, he said I, I can't think of one musician that had such an influence on his particular instrument. He said, if you want to think about rock and roll guitar, he said, sure. He said, we've had many heroes. He said, the 1950s would be absolutely be Chuck Berry. He said, the 1960s would be Jimi Hendrix. 1970s may be Eric Clapton. And, and on and on, 1980s would be, 
you know, Eddie Van Halen. He said, but Earl Scruggs reigned dominant as the greatest influence on the biggest majority of banjo players for half a century. You know, and if you, you can go on YouTube this morning, and I guarantee you there's a nine-year-old kid on there trying to figure out what Earl did 60 years ago. Mm. Oh, he's still trying to learn that stuff, see. And uh, that's, uh, that's pretty heavy when you stop and think about it. Yeah, and it's wonderful to have this excuse of Earl's 100th birthday to talk about it all and kind of celebrate it, really. Yeah, I mean, you take a, a guy that's uh, been the, the key player to the majority of players for more than half a century. That's just uh, unbelievable, honestly. I, I can't think of another musician, honestly, either in, that plays anything that, that can say that. Yeah, yeah, it's a glorious thing. Um, thanks so much for doing this, Jim. It's been a real treat talking to you. Well, appreciate you calling, Matt. Enjoy it. Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collingsguitars.com and find out why.